Hello everyone, Krista and Hannah here with a brief message before we start the episode. We are on the third season of Keys to Music Learning and we have loved every second. Talking about audiation-based piano instruction is a passion of ours, if you couldn't tell, and we thank you for listening and keeping us going. We recently launched the Keys to Music Learning community. Similar to Patreon, this is a way to support the podcast and access bonuses, such as opportunities to attend podcast recordings and monthly meetings so you can pick our brains with your questions, share your successes, and connect with other teachers. Become a silent partner for only $3 a month or, to access the bonuses, a friend of the podcast for $5 a month. Join today at musiclearningacademy.com slash keys to music learning community. The link will be in our show notes. Thank you all for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Keys to Music Learning. I'm Hannah Mayo of Hannah Mayo Music. And I'm Krista Yadro of Music Learning Academy. Join us as we discuss common goals and challenges in the piano studio and offer research-based ideas and solutions to guide every one of your students to reach their full musical potential with audiation. Today, we are welcoming back Bo Yan Ko for her third episode. We ended our conversation on the last episode talking about the challenges of teaching with an audiation-based approach and how it's important for parents to be on board with the process. So we wanted to start today asking you if you ever have students or parents of students who are skeptical of the MLT-based approach to piano teaching and learning. And if so, how do you handle that? Oh, yes. Um, I've seen this question come up a lot in teachers forum. And the short answer would be that, yes, I have parents who are skeptical or I've had had. And I handle it by selling it discreetly. (laughs) I don't think there's anyone who likes being sold to or the idea of being sold to, regardless of what is being sold. It could be very valuable. It could be something that they very need, you know, they need. But if it's not of their own volition, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't like the idea of being convinced. (laughs) Um, So... If you're trying to convince parents about the MLT approach when they don't have any experience of what it is and and they haven't seen what it can do, I think the chances are there'll be some resistance. Um, So I try not to say very much until there is an opportunity. Uh, Usually when I get a new student inquiry, I invite them to my online group classes first. you know, this is an opportunity for them to get to know me, see me in action, but see other kids in action also. And and I get to welcome the child as if, it, you know, they're just part of my class and, and they get to kind of experience it. Um, and, and because it's online, uh, you know, really there's no cost to this. And I, I don't, I'm not carving out another time out of my schedule to do this. So if I think it might work better, uh, with a few more classes, because some kids can be a little shy at first, and I invite them to a few more classes. And then I talk to parents about um, some things that I do, just just like the essential concepts and approach, uh, because they do need to understand what it is that they've seen. But at this point, they're a little bit more likely to understand what I'm talking about because they've seen it. Um, 
And if the child enjoyed the class, then then you have an easy win because not too many parents can say no to their children learning and having a great time. Um, another thing that I tried and worked well is inviting prospective parents and uh, students and parents to a performance class where my current beginner students play. And I usually provide some explanations describing what students have learned, and I make a big deal about you know what they're able to do, and and so this. Is an education for for the parents, um, but it's also like a brag party for my my students, and it's again a motivation thing for the prospective students, and so that's worked really really well. I've I've noticed that you know for children, if I play something for them and I play very well, it, it's no big deal. They're not very impressed, but if they're they're colleagues, not colleagues, they're friends, you know, if their classmates play Mary had a little limp, that's a big deal, right? Like everybody wants to be able to do it. <gasps> Johnny knows how to play the piano. I want to learn it too. It's kind of like me. My cousin learned to play the piano. I cannot be underachiever, right? And so, I, you know, I think that's worked well with um, with some people that have inquired, and and that was my indirect way of introducing them to how I work with students. Um, when I explain what each student has, and you know, learn and describe their performance, um, I I really see the difference not only in the kids that that you know are coming to the class for the first time but my students who I made these you know big deal out of their performance for the following lessons their eyes you know are like sparkly and they're so much more motivated to learn other things and so yeah I've I've kind of combined you know all of these opportunities to basically influence people uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Daniel Pink's to sell is human, but basically he talks about how everything we do is selling. And I agree with him because, you know, selling is, we may have some negative connotations to this idea of selling, but it's just a form of influencing. And as an educator, you're influencing a ton. And, and so I, I recognize that I am always selling an idea and I'm making that influence. Um, and so. Yeah, if we can do it in the most indirect way, that is convincing, and and also in a way where they feel like they want it for themselves, then you've done a great job. And so that's kind of my end goal in in uh, talking to parents who may feel skeptical for them to realize and come to a decision that this is what they want. And yeah, so you're gonna have to show a lot of what this can do without talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. At the beginning, um, I I feel like I talked too much, and even when no one was asking, you know, and I felt like I had to defend something that no one was asking me to defend because it was so different. And um, I got over that, and I'm glad that I did. A lot of MLT teachers say the same thing. They just say, I don't talk about it. Unless mm -hmm. someone asks me a question directly and says, well, what about this? And when are they going to read? Or whatever it might be. Or when are they going to play real music? I love that question. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, otherwise, you just do like you said. You just are very subtly doing your thing. I also found the handbook that you created for parents very useful. I've handed that out to some of my, you know, uh, new parents. And it gave them an idea of what to expect uh, in these group classes. And it also kind of saved 
me some time. You know? Yes, it does save a lot of time. And I have to give credit to Jenny Fisher. That was her idea was to give. Mm. Um, she didn't make a, a handbook. I took her idea and put them in a handbook. But she would give little half sheets of paper to parents at the end of each class, which is another way to kind of educate parents a little by little. Mm-hmm. I think that's hugely important. I think the jump right in curriculum also has a parent handbook, just a few pages, but what to expect and, and how do you kind of support music activities at home in a way that supports this way of learning. Right. And to um, identify the, the fact that it, it is a little different than what you might be expecting and to acknowledge that and respect that. I actually have a story that Michael Martin uh, told our class when I took the PDLC. He, um, so he was teaching a sibling, I think, and, and Michael Martin um, taught strings at school uh, schools. So most of his students were string players. And one of the kids, I think, was very passionate about his instrument, either violin or cello, and, and pr- was practicing a lot. And one day, uh, his mom came and said, oh, is this what Mr. Martin's teaching you these days? Like, is this piece what he's teaching you these days? And and the kid just looked at her and said, Mr. Martin does, doesn't teach me pieces. He teaches me how to uh, understand music or something like that. It was something crazy. It was like, he teaches me how to learn music, not pieces. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no. That is what we're doing. And that's, you know, that's a very that's very telling and it resonates with me because that's what I did before MLT. I taught pieces. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and everything that I expected to teach musically, I was teaching through repertoire. And that's very limiting for all of the music skills that are available to learn. I agree. I don't think we'll be surprised. I think that is exactly, you know, how I was taught to. And if you were to go to uh, university, even at graduate student level, I think this is their expectation. They learn to, they expect to learn to play repertoire and they want to know exactly how to play this certain repertoire. How do you tackle this technical challenge in this spot? How do you make this beginning, uh, you know, expressive? How do you make this harmonic progression make meaningful like so it's actually very tied to a piece Mm -hmm. and a follow-up question to this whole conversation is um not just about parents but in general what advice would you give new teachers who are getting started in audiation-based piano teaching well hannah thank you for asking this question because this really is for more uh more for myself than anything else um i i'm thinking about you know, if I were to do this all over again, what are the things that I would still do? And what are the things that I might do differently? And my first uh, advice to myself really is don't wait until I think I know it well enough, because I know I won't get there. There's just so much about so many things. Um, If I am waiting for that moment when I, you know, when I feel like I know it enough, it might never happen. And so just start doing what you already know and don't expect to do it perfectly. I think that would be the first advice. Um, the second would be, it's kind of similar, but you know, it's giving myself lots of time and, and the opportunity to grow with my students. Uh, I don't know how long it'll take until some of my students will finish book five. And I'm not quite certain at this point what the audi- audiation journey will look like beyond book five, but I'm, I am confident that they're 
it'll continue beyond book five, right? But I, I've decided to give myself um, at least as long as it takes my students to go through at least all these you know, books that are available uh, for me to get an overview of, of all, all this. And, and then I will have, I'll be at a point where I get a general idea of what the whole process will look, look, look like. I wanted to know this three years ago, right? I wanted to have this overview three years ago. I don't think it's practical. I did try um, actually reading things ahead of time and 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 just getting getting this overview myself. It just didn't stay. Kind of like reading that book before the the Houston workshop and and after the workshop. You know, it made such a big difference. You know, the context and. I couldn't remember any of the things I read before the workshop, but all of a sudden, you know, it was starting to click. I couldn't remember any of the things I read in the teacher book, even if I was trying these activities myself. But the things that I've tried with my students, it stays with me. And so I, the plan that I have for myself is just to go one step ahead of my students. And then I'm seeing that in keyboard games, as, as I repeat them, like because I've now run several keyboard game classes, it gets, I can't say it better, but uh, richer and deeper. And I have more flexibility. I feel more confident. There's more freedom to try more things. And it, it, it allows me to experiment. And it, again, spoils down to that um, my teaching principle, it is an experiment. You don't know, right? And so, again, allowing myself time would be um, that second, second um, advice. And I say this because... I, I see this in teachers' comments too. Uh, one of the areas, or one of the two areas that I all, all of a sudden, um, when I started my audiation journey, quote unquote, um, notice that the holes that I noticed in my audiation were, were improvisation and modes. I'm like, <laughs> do anybody play modes? I mean, don't you all hear it with like minor, with accidentals? Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Right. And so I think those are the areas where I felt like, oh my gosh, I need to know it. I need, I need to know it like today. I needed to know it yesterday. Right. Um, but I'm okay to know it next week. I'm okay to know it next year. It, just because um, knowing it today doesn't make the impact that I need to make today. I think the impact that I need to make today is being clear about what I'm doing with my students today. And so, you know, pacing myself, I think, is is really, really important. Um, yeah, and so that's, again, tying into my next advice. Don't beat yourself up if you don't feel great about your current audiation right now. Um, most likely, you didn't have an audiation-based training. I didn't. It is not your fault. It doesn't mean that you're a horrible person. It also doesn't mean that you're a horrible musician. We just didn't have that training. And so we don't stop learning. We can, we can start now. Love yourself. <laughs> Give yourself that big hug. Um, I think lastly, I would say keeping uh, track of our own development in our audition journey would be useful. Like at the end of the day, how do you know that I'm getting better at this? How do you know this is making the impact? How does this tie into my overall goal and objective as an educator, right? Because it's very easy to get lost because there's so much information. And so uh, we all have different goals, I'm, I'm assuming. And in this, whatever we're doing, it needs to make sense. And so keeping track of that would be, um, I think, unadvisable things to do. Some questions that I, I am asking myself 
are, well, you know, as I mentioned, how do you, how do I know that I'm getting better at this? Uh, what are the clues that this is working? You know, and I think if anybody is just getting started and feeling kind of overwhelmed and, and daunting at like how much there is and like not knowing where to start, I think you guys have made pretty good suggestions about, you know, doing one thing and, and trying one thing at a time. Uh, I think I'm, I would like to add that maybe try one thing in a sequence. And so the sequence that, that came clearer to me, um, and especially if you want to retain a traditional way of teaching that you're probably, you know, using right now and then kind of making your, your way into this way of teaching slowly would be to start with rhythm patterns. So most likely you'll come a student who has a rhythm problem. I, you know, like one of my teacher's favorite thing to say was your rhythm sucks. He even had a button made. Oh <laughs> and, and so he got tired of saying your rhythm sucks. And so he'll just point at the button on his like bulletin board. And so you'll, you'll most likely come across a student who, who has either trouble with rhythm or the, you know, coordination around rhythm using rhythm patterns, uh, to chant it out loud, uh, play it on one, one key improvising on that rhythm pattern until you've had so many variations of this, you know, rhythm pattern in improv form coming back to the original way of playing. I think that would be one of the easiest way to implement this MLT-ish idea into your traditional way of teaching. If that works out well for you, then build it so that you can now do this on a more, um, like you can tackle the entire repertoire this way. And then when you're doing it this way, you can either consider um, the, the whole par whole structure or following the rote procedure and how, to, how you teach rote, uh, a piece by rote. And, and that already has the whole par whole embedded in there. So you're, you're just expanding uh, this rhythm idea into more phrases and, and, and bigger structure. Um, I think that would be my first you know, suggestion. Like, in terms of how you implement it in your day-to-day -day teaching. And this way, before you know it, you've already delved into to patterns. You've already delved into, um, you know, including more listening. You've already delved into improvisation. That's been missing a lot in, in traditional training. And so, you know, having some sort of sequence would be my, my last <laughs> advice, hopefully practical advice. <laughs> I'm so glad that we include the transcription on our episode webpage because I feel like teachers need to go and read and take notes on everything that you just said because it is all so true. This advice that you that you gave, especially not needing to know everything when you start. Um, I mean, I've been teaching music moves for years and I am still learning along with my students until I got students, until I had students in book three, I did not hear subdominant as well as I do now. Now I can play and, you know, play familiar tunes or, you know, what my son might be listening to. And when it goes to subdominant, I'm just there. And that did not happen before I had lots of students in book three and I was forced to sing and improvise with the subdominant a lot. Um, and I look forward to having students in books four and book five because I know my audition is going to grow right along with those 
with those students. And you're right, too, when you say reading the teacher's books, it does provide some information, but teaching it takes it to a whole nother level. So, Boyan, how has MLT been valuable for your piano teaching? And what do you think it brings to the table that other piano approaches or methods might not? You know, it's interesting. I'm very passionate about teaching, and I always have been. And I always had a great time teaching, but I don't know if I've had this much fun <laughs> teaching before. I have a lot of fun. Um, and with that, I think, comes, or maybe this thing came before fun. There's so much freedom at the piano, and I absolutely value that. Like, I can't, I can't describe enough, like, I can't describe it with words how much I value that freedom. That fearlessness that you, that I see in some of my young students that I taught this way, I'm like, I wish I was taught that person. I think I was musical. Like, you know, couldn't I have been that fearless? Because I'm not fearless. I'm fearful sometimes, right? <laughs> so, and I, I see them and, and especially when we do improv and I, I noticed that improvisation again is, is one of the commonly talked about topics because it is just not included in our classical training, even though it's actually part of our classical tradition. I mean, you know, you talk, I remember uh, reading an episode or anecdote on Beethoven when Beethoven was trying to make a name for himself, not as a composer, like this was way much, uh, way when he was younger as a performer, he would show up to these like performance duels, you know, so to speak, where uh, they will give them a, a subject to improvise on and, 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 you know, each performer would or contestant will perform and they would give each person a different subject because it's unfair for, uh, the people who would go later than the first one because they're already influenced by what they've heard the first person, you know, do. Except even when Beethoven was not the first person to, to play, he would insist on using the same subject and, and do way better. <laughs> you know, like he would win the crowd over because his was, was much more, more dramatic or interesting or so on. So it is part of our tradition beyond the Baroque ornaments that we talk about, beyond, you know, like the, the editorial, uh, difference that we see in Chopin's music. Um, and yet we're not trained in it, right? Um, but there, it is a huge part of our curriculum uh, when you teach from an MLT perspective because it is the strongest evidence that you're you're able to think with music. Marilyn says that it cements learning. Uh, you'll see a lot of parallels in that language acquisition uh, chart that you know Gordon talks about. Um, you know, improvisation is thinking. It, it equates to thinking, and so yeah, it's it has that importance. I think personally it is your door to freedom. Like you, you're just so much free at the instrument. Like there's nothing wrong, right? With, with um, you can't say it's right or wrong when it's improvising. And, and that, that alone is, is putting your, your game on a totally, totally different realm where we're in a different game altogether. Yeah, that's really, um, I agree with you. That's probably my mm, top three. It's in my top three favorite things about music moves that I have not seen as much in other methods. And yeah. it's the improv element and the the way that the improvisation is presented. I've seen improv presented in ways that are just too complicated. 
and the, it frustrates the student. Mm-hmm. Either complicated or not replicable. So mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the topics that I also lectured on this year because I was talking about various aspects of MLT and and also music moves was an improvisation. And so I did a little survey of, of you know, how improvisation is taught in our current literature. And there's a lot of there's actually a lot of resources out there, uh, but a lot of them will depend on the teacher to provide a context. And what you do happens to be a happenstance that that happens to work well with the given structure. And so that is not repeatable. Without it, it's not necessarily repeatable. I think over a really long period of time, you might develop a sense for that sound because, you know, you get acculturated. But um, with music moves, you have very simple but, but very concrete uh, you know, um, content that you can work with. And so that is, that is replicable. It's changeable. It's buildable. And so I think that is why it, it's, um, something that opens that, that door for us, you know, <laughs> giving you that freedom. Right. And the step by step, um, exploration, creativity, improvisation projects, it really feels like, uh, Marilyn, I say this all the time. It feels like she's just walking you through the steps and they're easy to follow. They're easy to understand and you do them. And then when you get to like a book four improv project, well, the sky just opens up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the students do amazing things in book four. I mean, they do amazing things in all the books, but that's when you really see, oh, that's why we took it step by step. That's why we were so simplistic at the beginning, because now we've really solidified through replication. We've solidified all of these building blocks of improvisation so that by the time you are improvising, you know, a three part form where with multiple phrases in each part and you're basically, you know, composing a piece, but you're improvising. It's really brilliant. And it's fun. You're right. The freedom and the fun. Whew. Did never experience that before. <laughs> um, so speaking of favorite things, as of right now, what is your favorite part about teaching piano using the audiation-based approach? Remember what my uh, ultimate goal in teaching was? Um, it's for students to learn themselves, and I keep catching themselves learning themselves. That is my favorite thing. And that's a wonderful way to wrap up our <laughs> third episode with you, Boyan. We could probably have you on for multiple episodes. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for being a part of Keys to Music Learning podcast and being such a wonderful part of our Music Moves for Piano community as well. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This has been incredibly fun for me too. kind of reflecting on my audition journey, my audition based teaching journey. And hopefully, you know, some of our listeners will find it useful. <laughs> Even if you don't, I, I strongly recommend uh, starting this journey soon because it does make a big difference. Absolutely. And if you have any questions, our listeners, if you have any questions about anything that you heard in this three-part series with Boyan, of course, you are always invited to post those questions or comments or kudos 
on the introduction to audiation-based piano teaching and music moves for piano, the longest name in the Facebook world, um, on our Facebook page. And uh, we welcome your feedback and your questions about our conversations with Bo Yan. Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>